Hello and welcome to Careers by Design, the interviews. I'm Sharon Belden Castingway, director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Suzanne Gilbert-Lenz, Wesleyan class of 1988, a Los Angeles-based obstetrician and gynecologist and integrative medicine specialist. If her name sounds familiar, it's because you may have seen Dr. Suzanne, as she is sometimes known on TV, heard her on other podcasts related to health and wellness, or read any number of her articles in the media, both print and online. Uh, Dr. Suzanne, to start out, can you tell me a bit about your current medical practice? Yeah, hi Sharon, um, thanks for having me. So my current medical practice is a, a actually very conventional um, general obstetrics and gynecology practice in Beverly Hills. Um, so I see everything. I see pregnant women, women trying to get pregnant, women trying to not get pregnant, um, adolescents, uh, older women, menopause, hormonal stuff, infections, sexuality, the gamut of women's health. That's pretty much what I do. I, I do surgeries. I deliver babies. Uh, it's really cool. I mean, I get to do a lot of different things, and I get to know people over the course of their life, uh, which is amazing. This year I delivered, um, I've got one on deck, but it will be my fourth baby to a patient who started with me as a teenager. Oh, that's so great. That makes me feel both old, <laughs> very old, <laughs> um, <laughs> and like really grateful. I mean, I've known these women since they were, you know, young, really young. So that's pretty cool. That's great. Did yeah. you always know you wanted to be a doctor? Were you one of those kids who just knew from day one? No, no way. Um, I Actually, my dad's a doctor, so I think if you talk to people who have physicians in the family, there's sort of this, um, I mean, in retrospect, I think that my sense was when you grow up, you are a doctor. You know what I mean? Like that's like, that's like a thing because right. that's like what the one of the adults in my house was doing. He was a doctor, and he was very identified and still is. He's 80. He still practices. Um, he was very identified as a person, like as a doctor. I didn't feel pressured either to be a doctor. And I thought, like, in high school I probably would. And actually when I came to Wesleyan, um, I got a little bit sidetracked uh, in a good way because the other thing that I had been doing throughout my childhood and young adulthood was performing and writing. And I was very creative and I was very artistic in terms of the performing arts. So I didn't have a strong sense of which thing I was going to do, and I didn't really want to have to give any of that up. And it's kind of interesting how, you know – Many, many, many years later, I've I've creatively found a way to uh, combine a lot of that stuff, you know, which I don't I don't think would would have been obvious or was obvious to me at the time. What made you decide to attend a liberal arts college? What got you to Wesleyan? Hmm. You know, it was a couple of things. One was that I had being from California, from Los Angeles. I definitely had a very romanticized vision of like college in New England that got stuck in my brain pretty early on. We we took a trip to Boston, I remember, and New England probably when I was about 12. <coughs> Excuse me. And um I was really kind of in love with the whole thing. Probably, you know, like the look of it to be perfectly honest and the feel of it. But I was I was a fairly intellectual young person and I knew that the life of the mind was going to be very important to me and I really didn't even I had no interest in going into a large state school. And, you know, look, University of California schools are amazing 
and I got into Berkeley and I wasn't even like on my radar. I wasn't, it wasn't part of my, I, I knew I wasn't going to do well in a large environment. I liked to have that one-on-one interaction with teaching staff, with professors, a lot of engagement and um, just intuitively, I think at 18, I was pretty smart about choosing the right environment for me and my parents thankfully supported that. My mom went to Mills College in Oakland, which is one of the few uh, still all-women's colleges, and it's an amazing place. I actually did my post-bac work there. Um, My dad, you know, like, worked his way through medical school at University of Illinois. Like, he came from a very different background. And he, honestly, this was, like, not his deal, but he supported it. He knew I really, really wanted it. Um, So I don't know if that answers the question. It does. So my understanding is that you majored in art history and psychology here. Is that correct? Um, I actually majored in psych and soch. I double majored okay. in psych and soch, and I had um, – I think I actually <clears throat> was a credit shy of, of minoring in art history. So I don't know if there's something that we can work out maybe over this uh, podcast today. Maybe we can <laughs> grandfather me in. But I really, really loved art history, and in particular – well, my, my assigned first-year advisor was um, John Paoletti, who was just such a force – in every possible way and what an amazingly random and fantastic like experience was that like I came in not you know I came from a big public high school I mean it was Beverly Hills High School but it was a public high school we didn't have art history in the 80s at at a at Beverly Hills High School and I just ended up in his office with his like he had like an annex that was literally full of um oh my God, what, ma- like just art magazines and like W and all this cool stuff. Like he was so amazing to me. So of course I signed up for his class, his, you know, his, you know, famous uh, intro to art history class. And I was just wowed. So I kind of got hooked. And then I ended up really veering off into architectural history. I was actually interested at one point in maybe becoming an architect. And I took tons of Joe series classes. So I loved that, loved that. That just like, to me was again, in retrospect, a very Wesleyan experience because for me, the production of art, like the the combination of the individual's expression of their own um, art and their own creativity filters through the experience of the culture and the prevailing notions at the time or whatever they were resisting or challenging or subverting was so fascinating. And that's like, I think that's, I feel like that's a very Wesleyan way to look at it. And mm-hmm. actually that's what my thesis was about. So, um, I didn't actually didn't actually minor in art history, but I did love it. Still do. When along the way did you decide that you were going to go to medical school? Well, okay, so as I may have mentioned, um, I mean, I thought in high school I probably wanted to do pre-med. And when I got to Wesleyan, I started, I met Paletti and Siri and all these amazing, you know, teachers. And I was like, wow, there's all these other things here that I really want to take. And, um, I, I started feeling like, well, if I really want to do this, I don't have the time for pre-med stuff, and maybe I don't really want to go to medical school. And um, and so I didn't – that was not what I thought I was going to do while I was at Wesleyan. When I left Wesleyan and I uh, moved down to the, to the Bay Area, to San Francisco, and I started working, I ended up working in residential psychiatric care. Um, you probably don't want me to say this, but probably because – uh, I wasn't really qualified for very many jobs, to <laughs> <just> be <being> honest. <laughs> so you can cut this out of the podcast if you want. But I think I didn't have the maturity to really do a whole lot else. 
and that that grew me up fast and a couple of things happened there i realized I needed to get a graduate degree that I was going to be bored out of my mind if I didn't continue to pursue studies. And then also my options were going to be limited if I didn't pursue further studies. And when I started looking at, well, do I want to go back to graduate school in more of an academic setting and really pursue something like art history, or do I want to be out in the field touching people, working with people? I knew that I was not going to, I wasn't going to do well in what I considered, you know, at, at the ripe old age of 21, every tower. I just I'm like out in the out in the world person I am I always have been and I, I I always will be and so I decided okay so maybe I do need to look at at medicine again and of course I hadn't done any of my med so um, I there was a post back program that I was able to do um, at Mills College Oakland and I simultaneously worked <clears throat> did research took uh, classes and I applied to medical school and um, entered medical school four years after I graduated Wesleyan. And I was a much better medical school candidate for all of those experiences for a million reasons. I also was ready to go to medical school. I was not ready to go to medical school at 22. I just, I wasn't. I wasn't like emotionally or psychologically ready. And I brought a lot more to the table as an applicant, but more importantly as a person, you know, four years later. And um, so that was a pretty... That was a really important experience, too, which is that, you know, things don't necessarily go the way you think. It's There's never a straight line from, you know, point A to point B. It's, it's a path that you don't know where it's going to go. And um, the, the journey is pretty, pretty interesting and is um, really ultimately what it's all about. Um, I mean, I could go on and on about this topic, you know, forever, but... Uh, I think I think Wesleyan also kind of gave me the intellectual um, confidence to just keep pursuing things because science was very intimidating to me. And I again I chose another small liberal arts college in which to study, and that was amazing. That was an amazing experience experience to be in an all women's uh, environment learning science. You know, I just felt um, really. Um, safe there to learn and very, very supported. And I ended up having like getting a chemistry fellowship, which was crazy. Like I hated math and science. I really did. And then I had a paid fellowship in chemistry. Like what? I actually liked organic chemistry. I liked it. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, how did you go about deciding what medical schools to choose. I should start off by saying that it's become much, much more common now for students to take time off before going to medical school. So right. you're, you're in good company these days. But there's a wide universe of medical schools out there. How did you go about narrowing the field? Oh, my God. Well, first of all, I went to med I graduated medical school in 1996. I really don't know what, like, how good my advice will be at this point. You know, a lot of it was... Um, some of it was program, and a lot of it was location, to be perfectly honest. I wanted to be at um, a hospital that was going to have, like, a, preferably a large um, public hospital available to me for training because I figured I'd probably get a lot more diversity of experiences and patients in that environment. Right. Um, and um, I remember specifically looking at places in the Midwest, like Case Western and stuff, because they had a much more progressive um, curriculum at the time. I mean, you know, I can't tell you anything about curricula now because I think things have changed a lot. But at the time, 
they were moving more to like an organ system based um, approach and um, there was like a big shift going on in medical education and I was attracted to those schools that were more progressive in terms of looking at the body in at at that time was considered a little more holistic way I mean that's not the words that was were being used but that that definitely appealed to me and then ultimately I knew that I really I wanted I wanted to be on the west coast if possible because that's where I was living that's where my family was from Um, the midwest I have family there and the east coast I was familiar with Um, so that that's kind of how I went about it I mean I, you know, I don't know. I, you know, when you're applying to medical school, too, you really, like, you just want to get into medical school. Right. I, you know, it's not easy to get in. Oh, absolutely. At the time, being a, quote, older student, which is hilarious to me now, older, please, I was, like, 25. But but I was older, and, the, and that, was a diff, that was different. That was not not the norm at all at the time. And so I also, I think I was looking at schools that I knew were going to get it. Right. Because some schools are going to be like, what's wrong with her? You know, or what? she has a liberal arts education. What's up with that? You know, now people get it. Now people understand why that is so critical and why that makes so much of a better doctor. Right, right. Was medical school what you expected it to be? No. No. <laughs> Not at all. It was way harder. Um way harder. I mean, I was a person who was used to being, and I mean, I remember going to Wesleyan and being like, whoa, you know, I came from a public high school where I was in, the, you know, the top 1% of my class, which is how I got into Wesleyan. And um, although it's, I probably, I, I joke now, I probably wouldn't have gotten in now, but it, in, you know, 1984, I got in. Um, so, you know, you get to Wesleyan, and you're like, oh, everybody here is really smart. Okay. That's, that's rough. <laughs> that's rough psychologically because, you know, for me, my, my school experience and my brain were like a lot of where my self-esteem was coming from so medical school was you know yet another cut it was like whoa and a lot of these people were like way more sciencey people and way more pre-med and there was this like culture that was very different from from the culture I came from and so that was hard for me too in some ways I had to really um lose a lot of judgments I had about people and their experiences and what brought them to medicine and why they were there I had a very idealistic reason myself for going into medicine and I really like I had been working in the um, Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic and working with you know poor youth who were in and out of um, California Youth Authority which is our jail system here basically for young people like I was just working with like it was a whole I was I had like a social justice aspect a lot of that was motivating me and I thought everybody who goes to medical school was like oh my god was like me and that was not the case um, but we had an interesting thing that happened in our medical school class. Like, we had a lot of conflict because we did actually – USC at the time, which is where I went to medical school, was starting to bring in more diversity in terms of age and um, ethnicity, race. Um, you know, gender was not as big of an issue at USC. I went to some – I looked at some medical schools where the class was 20% female, and I was like, oh, hells to the no. I don't, I don't need to be – I don't want to be there. I just – I don't need to be that kind of a pioneer. That that was shocking. And now I think a lot of classes are more than 50% female, but that wasn't the case when I went. So, you know, USC had kind of brought in a lot of different, quote, kind of people into our class. And there was quite a bit of conflict, to be perfectly honest. But what happened was by the time we got to the third year, so the first two years are didactic in the classroom, um, <clears throat> third and fourth year, you're on the wards. You know, we had to rely on each other and work with each other. And you really saw what people were made of. And a lot of my judgments 
about other people fell away. It was like, wow, this, this guy is not just a frat boy. He's a person who really cares about this patient and taking care of this human being and understanding what the problem is and making sure they're comfortable or whatever it was. And it was really a good experience for me to see where my blind spots were and where my judgments were and where I was being holier than thou because that's not helpful. You know, that's not, that's not helpful as a person on the planet. And I wasn't better than them because I had a liberal arts education. I wasn't. You know, this is not true. So um, it was hard in ways that I wouldn't have anticipated, and it was awesome. I mean, obviously, there's like the physical part of it, working so hard and the stress of, you know, the coursework, and it's just an insane amount of information to put inside of a person's brain. It's not normal, but medicine is very stressful, and if you're not um, a pretty tough person, it's, it's not for you. It's really not. Did you know going in that you'd ultimately specialize in women's health? I mean, I had a notion. It was what was most appealing to me. Um, but I wasn't really convinced until I started working with patients. And um, <clears throat> I discovered that I really liked the operating room, which I wouldn't have known, you know, otherwise. Um, I thought about family medicine, but I think because I liked the operating room so much, I I really knew I didn't want to do that. I thought about general surgery, um, and I didn't want to commit myself to what was probably going to be seven or eight years of training at that point because, you you know, most people wouldn't stay with general surgery. They would do a fellowship, and it was was really pretty misogynist, to be perfectly honest, um, at the time. Uh, there were very few women, and I can think of two female residents at USC in their surgery program at the time, two, in the 90s. And it was brutal. And I was like, ooh, I don't, I don't again, I was like, I don't need to subject myself to that. I just don't. Um, and women's health was really appealing. I was a little bit afraid of the OB because I knew that it was fun and thrilling, but it was going to be hard. And uh, yet it was what I loved. It was what spoke to me, and nothing else even came close and so I went with what I was passionate about. How and when did your interest in Eastern medicine, in integrative medicine, start to develop? You know, it actually started in medical school. I think part of it was motivated by my my childhood travels to um, many different places all over the globe where I saw people living in different ways and doing different things than we did here and having an understanding very early on that we don't really, like, we don't know everything. The way we do it isn't necessarily the only way. I think that was sort of um, in the back of my mind without me, like, maybe consciously being aware of it. And um, and then working with the patient population that I was working with at L.A. County, you know, a lot, primarily Latino, many um, indigenous from Central America and Mexico, um, you know, I spoke Spanish pretty well, actually, and, um, you know, there were people who I just, they spoke Quechua or some, you know, dialect, and it was like we were not speaking the same language at all. Um, and they had a lot of really interesting um, different systems that they were they were bringing to the table, and I became kind of interested in learning more about that. And um, And then it just sort of grew because even during my residency, um, I felt like there was something missing in Western medicine, that there was this something else was going on. There was an exchange between the doctor and the patient that you couldn't really document um, in a, a conventional Western way. And, and, you know, that because over and over, patients would 
say things to me about their own spirituality or tell me that God was working through me or, or whatever it was. There was a healing exchange that was happening. There was an energy that was happening that I couldn't quantify with, you know, empirical scientific evidence. And I, and I knew it was happening. I saw it because it was affecting me too. And then honestly, the, the last little jewel in that, in that, uh, that whole situation was that I had a patient toward the end of my residency who um, she came in through our clinic and the way it works is, you know, she had a resident who was her sort of primary doctor and she came to the operating room and I was the chief um, resident on that service, on the gynecology service. So I met her just before her surgery and she, literally this is what happened. I mean, she, I came up to introduce myself cause I've never met her and I'm going to be operating on her as the sort of supervising resident with my attending and with the, her, her junior resident who was taking care of her in the clinic. And I introduced myself and she said to me, Hey, I've got these essential oils and I'd like to put them on you so that you have clarity in the operating room. And I was like, okay, cool. Bring it. You know, like why, like, why am I going to judge that? Like a lot of people would have been like, what are you talking about lady? That's some craziness. Um, and I felt like this woman is trusting me to take care of her, and she does not even know me. The least I can do is honor her request. It didn't smell bad, right? So I did it. I went to the OR. We did her case. It was very challenging. I found out afterwards that my attending, who was a really lovely, wonderful guy, but was a southern gentleman, very conservative, she had said the same thing to him, and he kind of balked, you know, because he was just uncomfortable with it. It wasn't his thing. And she told me that way later. I didn't know that at the time. And she felt very grateful for my, just my openness. I mean, I was always learning from the patients. I still do. What happened post-operatively was that she had, her friends all came in, they brought her food. It didn't smell or look like a, a hospital room. They had Tibetan prayer flags and stuff. And she, and she healed so well and so fast. And she had a really big operation. And it was really interesting. And I was like, hmm, again, something different is going on here. She came to me later and approached me, and she introduced me to Ayurveda, which is the ancient Indian um, traditional medicine system, which is 6,000 years old. And I, it really, she really piqued my interest. Um, and I started, and I was already doing yoga and had learned to meditate. And so it just kind of all gelled. And I, I thought, like, well, let me, I really just started studying for my own interest. I was like, this is pretty cool. This stuff has been going on for 6,000 years. There's got to be some value. And from there, everything kind of built, you know. And I, I think that the culture um, in the United States of wellness and looking at more holistic and traditional systems, there was an openness already building at that time. I understand that you ultimately got some formal training in mm -hmm. Ayurveda. Can you tell us a bit more about exactly what it is? Yeah, so, oh my God, Ayurveda, you want me to tell you what it is? Okay. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, it's, it grew up around the same time as traditional Chinese medicine, so there are a lot of parallels, very, very similar. I think a lot of people listening might know more about Chinese medicine, or maybe they don't. But basically, the idea is that there are um, constitutional variations from individual to individual that sort of um, dominate their health, and that would be the health of their body and the health of their mind. One of the principles in Ayurveda is that the mind needs to be balanced, and specifically the gut needs to be balanced. So how we eat, what we eat, when we eat, and that we don't all 
do it exactly the same and we're not supposed to do it exactly the same because we are individual. So that starts from that premise. I mean, it's way more complicated than this. There's a system called doshas, which are energies and, and um, I don't, I'm not going to give a 20 hour lesson on this, but it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. One of the things that appealed to me as a physician and a, as somewhat of a scientist is that, you know, they were mapping out their quote Ayurvedic physiology and Ayurvedic anatomy 6,000 years ago. And a lot of what they, without, you know, without the benefit of, you know, MRIs and, you know, even, um, uh, you know, um, the kind of surgical explorations that we've done and they were right in a lot of ways in terms of like neurovascular bundles and stimulation points in the body that would increase or change um, now what we're calling the microflora or the microbiome um, the endocrine system uh, the nervous system I mean it was remarkably accurate for the language of the time and I thought that was really fascinating so yoga is actually a branch of Ayurveda um, a lot of people in the West don't really realize that it's just one of the modalities um, a healing modality and so there's a whole lifestyle um, approach you know sleep eat elimination yoga other physical practices herbal medicine um, body body medicine, body practices, massage, oil therapies. They don't use needles in Ayurveda, but they do something called marma therapy, which is very similar, but using those same kind of points that like they use in Chinese medicine to stimulate. Um, and it's remarkably effective, I think, for some things that we don't do well with in, in conventional Western medicine or as a um, complementary or adjunct modality. So, um, I don't practice it per se, but it informs my attitude. And I do work with practitioners locally here who I think are well-trained because in this country, we don't have a licensing process yet. There are people in the community who are working on that. Um, it's it's hard to get that done, um, but I do know quite a few people who are trained in India. In India, it's one of the options for medical school is conventional like medicine like we practice here and then the other one is Ayurvedic medicine are combined so the people who get trained as a quote um, Ayurvedic MD in India really get the equivalent amount of time and training as we do in this country they're very 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 well trained and it's very rigorous training so um, so that I don't know if that gives a little bit of an overview um, as to how that works but um, it's a holistic system it's it's looking at the entire person rather than like pieces and parts you know yeah no, that makes that's, sense? that's great yeah can you tell me a bit about how you've seen the role of integrative medicine in the medical profession grow or change over the course of your medical career <laughs> well i mean it's exploded first of all it's not something that's whispered anymore when i was training i was really quiet about it because i didn't want people to think that i was crazy you know, and there are still people who would look at me weird, and I, I don't care at this point. But that's also because it's much more popular, and this idea of wellness and, and health rather than disease management, you know, so prevention as opposed to disease management as a value is, is much more accepted in medicine now. You know, not that you don't manage diseases, obviously you do, but the idea of prevention and also the idea that things that we didn't previously understand in Western medicine do have an impact. Like I just came from, I spent the day yesterday at a conference, really wonderful, the Sims Man Institute. Um, they have an annual think tank and their focus is on zero to three. 
and um, this conference, neurodevelopment specifically, and this conference was what stress in the brain. And a lot of the things that these ancient technologies have always said, which is that, you know, stress has an effect on the body. Like we now understand, we, we now know that the gut, for instance, <clears throat> has more neurotransmitters than the nervous system. And that when you, quote, have a gut feeling, isn't that funny that we say that? You have a gut feeling. Right. Well, I mean, it's a real thing. Um, that the microbiome has an impact on the health of not only that person, but if you're a pregnant person, on the health of the fetus and the lifelong health of that person who's going to be born. Um, that stress specifically, you know, is an inflammatory process and um, has an impact very obviously during the antenatal time, but also has a long-lasting effect. But then that means there are interventions you can do. So here's a great Ayurvedic, you know, intervention, meditation. If you teach people meditation, and Herbert Benson was doing these studies in the early 70s at Harvard, there's lots of data, scientific data on this. You know, we know we have blood pressure changes, we have oxygenation changes, it's a, there's a calming effect, you have hormonal changes, you switch from flight or uh, fight to parasympathetic relaxation. And these things have not only an impact on mom, but on the infant, because they're having constant exposure to cortisol of mom if she's having what we call toxic stress. Not like, I'm late to, you know, uh, work that not that you know not um, I burned the dinner. I'm talking like you know poverty, uh, abuse, war, that kind of stuff. Right. <clears throat> Mom is getting exposed to cortisol from stress, so is baby, and now baby's going to be really hyper reactive. You know, as a baby and then as an adult, there are a lot of setups long term, and probably health implications too because the inflammation that occurs from stress from those stress hormones we know are precursor steps to many diseases many chronic diseases cancers heart disease diabetes this is real stuff this isn't just like woo woo hoo ha this is real so it's you know to me that we can go from me kind of being super quiet about saying hey I'm studying Ayurveda to me being able to go to a conference and I'm openly introduced all the time now as somebody who has you know knowledge in holistic medicine and, and expertise in holistic medicine and people seek me out because of it I mean that's in the space of less than 20 years which seems like a really long time but uh, it, it's it is what it is and that's really really exciting to me very gratifying how did you begin to develop a more public presence in your own career how did you get in involved as a go-to person for like Women's Health Magazine and people like Dr. Drew and Dr. Oz? Because I, I'm a good talker. I don't get scared in front of a camera and I work in Beverly Hills. I mean, seriously, that's really what happened. What ha how, how a lot of this happened was just happenstance. Um, and you know, producers and editors are like all of us. They want to do what's going to be easiest for them. So if they work with you once and they like the product and you're easy to work with, they're going to keep coming back to you. I happened to, I have, you know, I, I have a, a fairly diverse population for being a doctor in Beverly Hills, but <coughs> excuse me, I do have a lot. I'm sorry, I'm just getting over this awful virus. Um, I do have a lot of people who work in, you know, in the entertainment industry and. You know, one person was like, hey, you're interesting and funny. Would you, you know, and, and gave my name to some people, and it kind of blossomed from there. And, you know, um, and I think I had something to say that was a little bit different and palatable, mm -hmm. not so, like, um, hardcore doctory. I don't, I don't, um, I mean, I, I don't know how to sound right now, but I don't think initially when people got to know me, they, they did not, 
I, I wasn't packaged like a traditional doctor. Let's put it that way. Okay. Like, you know, I'm more like your girlfriend. Right, right, right. Which makes you more accessible to those who might want to ask Way you more. uncomfortable questions in women's health matters. Right. Right. And I'm not afraid to say stuff, you know. So I'm very like, I'm, I am who I am. And I am who I am pretty consistently. Like, I'm, I am who I am on this podcast and in front of a camera and with my patients and with my kids and with my friends and in my writing group and, you know, whatever. Like, I'm not, I don't have like a lot of different, I have a lot of different hats I wear, but my personality doesn't change all that much, I don't think. So... You're involved in a number of nonprofit boards, community engagement activities. Can you tell me a bit about that and why you chose those particular initiatives? Yeah, I'm so excited and happy about those things. I mean, I kind of feel like they chose me, to be honest. Um, I think it's a combination of things. I think I grew up in a family where, I don't know if my parents actually ever said this out loud, but I definitely got the message that I needed to not only be grateful for what I had, but to give back. Um, my dad is totally self-made. My Both my grandfathers are immigrants to this country. So I am a second and a half generation American, proudly. And, um, you know, my grandfathers came here not just to make a life, but to save their lives. Because had they stayed where they were, none of us would be alive. That's just the way it is. And people that's why people come to this country. Just I'm just going to say that and we'll leave it there. Um, Anyways, so, um, you know, my dad's self-made. My, my dad didn't, didn't uh, grow up in tremendous wealth, and um, he was pretty clear with us, like, you know, you give back. So that was part of it. And then I think at Wesleyan also this idea of, of civic engagement, social justice, and um, that everybody has some gift to, um, to share, and, you know, some of us are, are – fortunate to have money to share and some of it's us it's time and some of it's talent and I've been fortunate enough to have kind of a little bit of the combination of the three the Pico Union project which I urge any of you guys to check out I don't know if you guys provide links or anything online it's a really extraordinary um, experience going on here in Los Angeles it it's um, housed in the oldest synagogue building in Los Angeles, which was built in the early 1900s, that then became a church because the neighborhood wasn't a Jewish neighborhood anymore. And it was sold to um, a friend of mine who's an artist and musician about four years ago because the church no longer could maintain the property and they wanted to make sure that it was um, stewarded into the future as a spiritual community. Um, at that point, it was housing multi, multiple different faith communities. There's a, the first female North American mosque is there, the, a Korean church, uh, a church that works mostly with ex-cons and homeless guys, a black church, and then we started doing Jewish things there in the last two years. There hadn't been any Jewish high holiday services in the building for almost 100 years, and um, we did that the last two years. We do a lot of arts programming, community programming, Seeds of Change, where we teach the neighbors how to um, grow and cook and eat healthy food. Um, we've planted gardens in the neighborhood. We've brought trash cans into the neighborhood. It's an impoverished neighborhood. They didn't have trash cans because nobody was fighting for them. Hmm. There's no tagging on the building. The building has not been tagged once in four years. It's in a gang neighborhood. Um, it's pretty awesome. So it's been this really cool and beautiful community, especially in the last six months, where people of different faiths and colors and backgrounds and ideas come together to break bread, to tell stories, to you know participate in spiritual activities, um, watch music. You know, it's really, that's like my heart and soul. And I think 
that's not just Wesleyan. That's who I am and my family background. But Wesleyan definitely encouraged that kind of creative partnership and cooperation with people and that we can build something ground up, you know, grassroots up. It's very powerful. Um, I'm also, I just mentioned the Sims Mann Institute. I'm on the advisory board there. That's an amazing opportunity to intervene with the most up-to-date science in the communities that we're in and, you know, again, a ground-up approach, which is kind of my thing. Um, and actually, the funny thing is I became inspired to become a meditation teacher. I've been meditating for like 20 years, which is me on meditation. Can you imagine? <laughs> I'm so hyper <laughs> and coffee. Um, but I've always, I'm going to learn how to teach meditation and I'm going to bring that into my practice and into the community where I'm going to teach um, women and families um, how to bring meditation into their personal lives and into their lifestyle in order to to help stay healthier and create more health opportunities for themselves and for their communities and families. I'm really excited about this. And then the last um, place I'm involved in, I mean, it was my hairstylist that started it. It's called Makeovers That Matter. He started doing hair for free at a homeless shelter, and it just burgeoned into this whole nonprofit that serves female veterans and female caregivers of veterans. And they they go through a program that he's designed that I'm a part of that's a quote makeover program but it's a, a life makeover they learn finances organization how to put a CV together how to interview and then they get a, a, an actual makeover or hair and makeup and they get help in trying to find a job which is pretty awesome so um, you know a lot of service I'm very interested in, in service. I've received a lot over the course of my life, and I feel so lucky to be able to give something back. And I really I really enjoy it because I, I like people. People are interesting to me. I love hearing their stories. I get to do it all day, every day in my office, to be honest. That's about 70% of what I do is listen and talk. And I think these organizations that I'm in, um, the, the stories are a big part of it, too. You know, people sharing who they are. So, right. For people who are interested in looking up some of these organizations, if I remember correctly, Pico Union is spelled P I C O Union. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pico Union Project. Pico Union dot org. Project. Great. And it's a great model. I'd love to see people doing something like this in every town and city in America. Because this is exactly what we need right now. We need healing communities where we're talking to each other and getting to know each other, you know. What else do you feel you still need to accomplish in your career, if anything? Oh, wow. Sleep? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think I'd like to, you know, I made a choice to not go into academic medicine. I really wanted to do clinical medicine. I had two young children. I didn't want to continue studying. I wanted to just get out and work. <clears throat> I'd love to be able to be involved in some research at some point um, to produce some evidence because my colleagues need their evidence um, that some of the stuff that we're talking about really does have an impact in work. Um, so I think that's something I'd like to do. I'd like to move more into teaching. I've always taught a lot, but not so much in the conventional fields. Um, I've done a lot of teaching and speaking in, to lay people. Um, I'd like to continue to do that. I don't know. I, I don't necessarily have a plan. I mean, I never really have. I think that's if there's a message here, I didn't really have a plan. I mean, I knew who I was, and I stayed close to who I am, and I think that's how these things happened. And a lot of them were surprises. I mean, most of them I didn't plan. A lot of times when I planned, 
that's exactly what didn't happen. And that's continued into my middle age, to be perfectly honest. And that's, I like it. I like a surprise. That's just kind of my thing. I like a surprise. I like, I don't want you to tell me what you're giving me for my birthday. I want to have a surprise. Um, I had an experience recently where I didn't really realize what I was doing, signed up for what I thought was a writing workshop, turned out to be a storytelling workshop. And the next thing I know, I'm doing an extended storytelling workshop and I'm actually performing my first story this Saturday which is crazy. It's not crazy. I'm a talker, but it's crazy. It's like I had, I, I'm not, I'm not making this up, Sharon. I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, mm, I'm going to go to that museum. That looks cool. I'm going to do this thing. And the next thing I know, two months later. So that's kind of how I roll. If I show up, something interesting is probably going to end up happening if I'm open to it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a great worldview to have. <laughs> Well, that, and I think that's really good advice to have because I think a lot of people, and I'm not saying that I didn't work hard to get where I am because I worked my butt off, but a lot of it really was just like showing up right. and being open to what happens rather than thinking I'm going to control everything because that's, that's just not going to work. And I'm going to tell you something. OB is a really great lesson in that, and I've mm. written on that. If you want to go online and read my yoga of OB thing, I think it's a great encapsulation of my philosophy, which is that some of it's uncomfortable, you don't really know what's going to happen, and you just have to kind of go with it. I mean, that's that's what happens during pregnancy and labor, and then really the rest of your life. Your website, for those who want to look up more of your stuff, is askdrsuzanne.com, is that right? No, it's actually the Dr. Suzanne. The Dr. Suzanne, no, yes. The, no, because somebody had asked Dr. Suzanne. So this is the Dr. <laughs> Suzanne, no punctuation. And I'm on um, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Ask Dr. Suzanne. Wonderful. Thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Suzanne Gilbert-Glenz, Class of 1988. Thank you, Sharon. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.